hear the word of the Lord from Mark 9. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where there, worm, where there, worm does not die and fire is not quenched. This, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Uh, good morning. Like God said, um, my name is Britt, um, and this week we'll be going through Mark 9, 38 through 49, as we continue our sermon series through Mark. Uh, like God said, this is my first Sunday preaching, um, and so before we get started, I just want to take a moment um, to pray real quick. So I'd ask why we do this, that you'd pray for me as well. Um, just pray against nervousness, um, that I would clearly communicate God's word today, that he would use me to glorify him this morning, um, and that he would also prepare your hearts um, to receive his word today. So let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, um, just reveal yourself to us through your scriptures. Um, may we see you more clearly um, today, see how valuable you are, um, how, how, how much worth there is in being a part of your kingdom as we go through our text today. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we got kind of a cheery text today. Um, but before we, before we get started, um, I think it's important to look at the overall con context because I think that's um, important to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. And not just the context of this passage. I want to zoom out and look at the overall context of March, Mark because this passage um, is really in a transition portion of the book. Um, and again, I think that's important to our text. So honestly, while I was studying this week, um, I saw that um, and it changed how I saw this, this section of scripture. So I'm excited to share that this morning. So overall, Mark can be broken down into basically three basic section, sections. The first section is from the beginning of the book to about halfway through chapter eight. It's mostly focused on Jesus' early ministry. So we see him in Galilee, he's performing miracles, he's interacting with specific people, and he's teaching um, both his disciples and crowds. And so far, this is where we spent most of our time in our series on Mark. Um, 
And so that's, that's the first section. The second section, it's from the second half of chapter eight to the end of chapter 10. Here, Jesus is traveling. So he's, he's traveling up from Galilee down to Jerusalem um, and he's teaching his disciples along the way. The turning point of, of somewhat the book, but especially between section one and two is, is this discussion he has with his disciples. Um, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter looks at him and says that he's the Christ. And so that's really where the, where the book starts to take a turn. It's, it's evident that, that Jesus is the Christ, not just a prophet performing miracles. And then the last section is from chapter 11 um, to the end of the book. Like I said, in, in the second section, Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. And at the beginning of chapter 11, he enters Jerusalem. Um, the triumphal entry, if you've heard that. And then the rest of the section will lead up to his death and ultimately his resurrection. So with that context, let's take a look at kind of the first portion of our text. There's, there's two sections, 38 through 41, and then 42 through 48. So it says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So this text starts off with John telling Jesus that they saw someone try, try, or casting out demons in his name and they tried to stop him because he wasn't following them. He wasn't one of the disciples. And I think there's a little bit of background earlier that's helpful to help us understand what's going on. Earlier in chapter nine, verses, starting in verse 14, we see Jesus, James and John and Peter coming down off the mountain after the transfiguration, which Dodge preached about a few weeks ago. And as they're coming down, they come upon this scene with these other disciples. And they're trying to cast out a demon. Um, there's a boy that's demon possessed and they try to cast it out, but they are unable to. And so when, when Jesus comes down, the, the boy's father asked Jesus to heal him and Jesus does. And the disciples ask Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus responds, this kind, um, can only, cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so I think that's important because what the disciples are trying to stop this man from doing is, is the very thing they were just unable to do. So they're trying to stop uh, this, this non-disciple from casting out demons when, the, uh, when they couldn't do it themselves. And I, I think this is important because in, in earlier in Mark chapter three, when Jesus appoints his disciples, and then later in chapter six, when he sends them out to preach, um, one of the things Jesus explicitly authorizes them to do is cast out demons. In Mark three, he says, or it says, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And in Mark six, it says, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So this is one of the explicit things that Jesus has given to the disciples, this authority over demons. And so it's, it's a blow to their identity when they see this other man that's not with them um, 
casting out a demon, doing something that they were called to do, especially since he's successful doing it when they hadn't been. It seems like the disciples see him as encroaching on their role. Um, and so they, they try to stop it. And also right before our, our text in verses 33 through 37, it says, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this, this makes me wonder if some of this conversation of who's the greatest is directly related to this disciples being cast out. So James and John and Peter are coming down the mountain and they see the other disciples unable to cast out the demons. And you wonder if they thought they could have, had they been there. And so is this argument about who's the greatest um, dealing with, you know, could we have been there and cast out the demons? Are, are John and James and Peter stirring something, something up? And I think both of these, both their jealousy of this unnamed man and their arguments about who is the greatest are largely the results of misunderstanding Jesus' kingdom at all at this point. They don't understand what he is here for. And Mark is clearly trying to show this in this, these chapters 8, 9, and 10, this second section of Mark. Four times in these three chapters, Jesus comes to the disciples and he tells them that he's going to die. And all four times they don't understand what he's trying to tell them. So in chapter eight, after Peter confesses the Christ, Jesus says he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, they rise, rise again. It says, and he said this plainly. Um, but Peter comes alongside and rebukes Jesus, which not a good idea, but he doesn't anyway, um, because Jesus says he's going to come to die. He clearly doesn't understand. As they're coming off the mountain, after they've just seen Jesus in glory, Jesus tells them, uh, he charges them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So he tells them again, and it says they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Again, um, in between the two passages we just read, the casting out of the demon um, and the argument over who's the greatest, they're traveling and Jesus looks at the disciples and says, the son of man is gonna be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And then in chapter 10, after they encounter the rich young ruler, again, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days rise, again, they don't understand. James and John look at him and say, can we sit at your right hand in this kingdom? So clearly Mark is trying to show this, that they don't understand what the, what the kingdom is gonna look like. They know that Jesus is the Christ, Peter confessed that in chapter eight, 
but they still think that Jesus is going to be a conquering king, this Messiah to come and conquer and have a physical, political kingdom. They don't see him as a suffering servant come to die. And so they're worried about their own importance, what position they're going to have, because when this kingdom comes, they want to make sure that they're at the top. But Jesus challenges this. He said, this isn't how my kingdom works. He responds to them, to John, and says he's less concerned with what group demand is, what he's been authorized to do. He, he's more concerned about who's he for, the fact that he's doing these works in Jesus' name. And he says, the one who is not against us is for this. Um, in another one of the gospels in Matthew chapter 12, he says something that I, I think at first glance will sound different um, or maybe the opposite, but I actually think he's saying the same thing. He says, whoever is not with me is against me and who, do, who does not gather with me scatters. And so, like I said, I, it sounds different, but I think they're saying the same thing. The question is not, who are you with? What group are you with? The question is, who are you for? Are you with Jesus? That's what's ultimate. He's saying there's only two groups in this world. There's those that are for Jesus and his kingdom and those that are against his kingdom. And so it, it doesn't matter. This man's been doing a mighty work in Jesus' name. Um, and it doesn't matter if he's a disciple. What matters is that he's doing God's work. He's working for the kingdom. I do want to make a, a quick caveat here. This doesn't just give you a, a blank check to do whatever you want and say it's in Jesus' name, right? Um, the words that Jesus says, he says this man's doing a mighty work. That phrase is most often used to describe things that Jesus is doing, not, not other things. So Jesus is saying, if you're doing the things of the Lord, if you're doing good works, um, then don't, if someone's doing that, don't stop them. But if they're not doing something of the Lord, if they're doing what, what Jesus would say is evil, what God would call evil, um, we should stop them. We, we should step in. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. So just saying Jesus' name does not give you a blank check. And just, I want to I step out. I want to make this practical. I want to I make this, um, apply it to our day because I think this is actually really relevant for us. We live in a, a very um, decisive political climate. And so I just want to say, if, if you lean Republican, if you would call yourself a Republican, you have more in common with a Christian Democrat than you have with a non-Christian Republican. And at the end of the day, if you see a Christian do, Democrat doing good works, things that the Lord would approve of, in Jesus' name, I think Jesus would say, don't stop them. Don't interfere. It doesn't matter if they're not on quote-unquote the right side. And the opposite is true. If you, if you would consider yourself a Democrat, you have more in common with a Christian Republican than with a non-Christian Democrat. And if you see a Republican doing a good works in Jesus' name, don't stop them. Don't be so concerned about the right groups or the right side. Be concerned about whose, whose name the good work is being done is. And I don't think it just stops there. I think there's a lot of implications for this. I think church denominations are, are an easy one, right? So we're, we're at Sojourn. Um, we're part of a, a network of churches. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I'm a part of it. I put my stamp of approval on that. 
But just because someone doesn't go to this church, isn't in one of our churches, that doesn't mean they're doing something wrong. If, if they're doing godly things, if they're preaching the gospel, things that Jesus would do, don't stop them. Um, in our day, race is a big issue. If something's on the wrong side of that argument, but they're doing a good work, don't stop them. At the end of the day, what's most important is who's getting the glory. Um, and so moving on, uh, Jesus says, for truly I say, whoever gives you a, a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So again, just going back on our last section, he says, because you belong to Christ. So again, what matters here is are you doing this thing um, because of, of Christ or are you doing it for your own group? And he says this, and I think it's important because it, it shows it's not just big things. It's not casting out demons that Jesus sees, that God sees and rewards, but it's even the smallest things. It's a cup of cold water. So I just want to encourage you here. It means everything, you, little thing you do, um, whether that's serving on one of our teams on Sunday, delivering a meal to someone, helping someone move, giving someone a ride to church, while these things may seem little, they don't go unnoticed. Our heavenly father sees them and will reward them. So I'd encourage you, look to do more small things. Uh, don't, you don't have to do big things. Do big things, dream big, but also look to do small things. Especially if you're in a place in a season of life where maybe bigger things are harder to do. Take those little steps. And don't worry what other people are doing. Don't worry if other people are doing big things and you're unable to. Ask God what he's calling you to do right now, big or small, and just be faithful in that. And he'll see and reward. And so as we kind of wrap up this first section, we see that the kingdom is, is not what we expected. It's not going to come in power, um, but it's going to come by death. Um, and it's not about gaining position or influence. It's following Christ as he lays down his life. And therefore, it's open to all who worship and honor Christ, not just those in the right group. And so we can, we can move on to the next section, verses 42 through 48. And it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands than to, with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This section starts off with a pretty startling phrase. Jesus says that it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck. And so a millstone, if you're not familiar, it's a big circular disc used to grind grain. Just think of something really heavy. He says it's better for that to be hung around your neck and you thrown into the sea and drowned than for you to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. That's pretty stark language. And do you want to make a cl clarification? Um, in, the, in the footnotes of your Bible in verse 30, the 42, 
you might see that it says, where it says to sin, it may say to stumble um, as well as to sin. It's, it's the same word that's used later on in Mark um, where, where he talks about falling away. He, sa- he says, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But I'm, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to them, even though they all fall away, I will not. So I don't think it's necessarily saying a one-time sin that if you cause somebody to sin once, um, that's what Jesus has in mind here. I think it's if you're, if you're causing somebody to, to stumble, to fall away. Um, and I think, I think you see Paul make the same point in chapter 8 um, of 1 Corinthians. Um, and he's talking about little ones here. I don't think that just means children, actual little ones. Um, but it means young believers in the faith, weaker believers in the faith, which I think children fit into, um, but maybe isn't limited to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, um, he's talking about meat offered to idols um, and that you, you can eat of it. But he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. As believers, it's our duty to, to care for, for other believers. Um, and so Jesus is saying, what you do that affects others is important. It's, not just, it's just not yourself, um, but, but how you uh, affect others' faith um, and of, of our brothers and sisters. And then he turns, he kind of turns from facing outward to others to inwards. And he, he says this section about cutting off hands or feet or tearing out eyes um, if they cause you to sin. So I just want to be clear. I want to start off by saying, I don't think Jesus is commanding us to mutilate ourselves right here. Um, it, it kind of sounds like it, right? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, but here are a couple reasons why I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus' main emphasis here is the comparison of life without a hand, life without a foot, life without an eye, rather than the command to remove body parts. He's talking about the value of the kingdom and he's emphasizing that by saying it's better to live without a hand um, than to go to hell. And we'll kind of circle back to that later. And then I think growing up, I think the way I had always thought about this text was it was, it was punishment, right? If your hand's doing this, you punish your hand by cutting it off, right? your foot's doing this, you, you punish it. But I really, I really, in studying this, don't think that's what's happening here. Earlier in Mark chapter seven, Jesus says this. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come with from men and they defile a person. So Jesus knows. He knows it's not your hand that's actually causing you to sin. It's our heart. So he's not commanding us to cut off a limb to keep us from sinning because he knows that won't work. He knows the real problem is our heart and that we need new hearts. And then lastly, if you look at the disciples, the people that are living with Jesus during his ministry around him day to day, none of them explicitly follow this command. None of them um, cut off a hand or a foot 
um, during the rest of their lives. So I think, I think that's not what he's saying. But if that's not what he's saying, why is he using such strong language? What is he, what is he getting at? What is he trying to tell us? I think what Jesus is, is saying, why he's using such strong language, is he wants to waken our hard hearts up. I think the reality is he's trying to get our attention here. He's trying to say, sin is going to kill you. This isn't a game. We're not playing a game here. That, that sinning is going to end badly for you. It's going to end in hell, right? He uses this, this phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And that's a, that's a phrase that's directly from the, the end of Isaiah, uh, the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. And Isaiah, at the end of his book, he's prophesying about the, the new heavens and the new earth to come. And he says this, he says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. At the end of the world, Isaiah is pointing this picture. You're going to one of two places. Everybody is either moving towards the Lord and worshiping him, or moving away from him in rebellion, and will be left on the outside in this terrible picture where the worm shall not die, and the fire shall not be quenched. And this is the exact same thing Jesus has just told us, right? Everybody's moving to one of these two teams. You're either for Jesus or you're against him, right? And so I think if we're honest, if, I, if I'm honest, there's a lot of sins that maybe don't bother us a lot, right? Quote, unquote, respectable sins. Sure, there's the bad ones, murder, rape, stealing, adultery, and we, we know to, to, to stay away from them. We know to take those seriously. But there's a lot of them, you know, pride, greed, anger, jealousy, selfishness, failing to love our neighbors. I think in some ways we don't take those as seriously. But Jesus is saying, wake up. Take these sins seriously. They're going to kill you too. Do whatever it takes to flee from them. And so, like I said, I don't think he's saying that removing body parts is going to fix this, but I do think he's saying sin is serious and we should take it seriously because of how dangerous it is. And so I think we should do whatever it takes to fight sin in our daily lives. Maybe this means installing software on your computer if you struggle with pornography. Maybe it means stop hanging out with a certain group of friends if you know those, those friends, that situation is going to lead you to sin. Maybe it means stop going to certain places that you know are going to be easy temptation. And I think it also means bring people in. Don't do this alone. Don't fight sin alone. Find people to help you with this. And so with that said, I kind of want to double back to one of my earlier points where I said strong language. And I, I said strong language explicitly um, because I've seen the word hyperbole thrown around on this text. And I, I get what they're saying, but I, I disagree a little bit. Um, they say it because hyperbole just means to use exaggeration that's not to be taken seriously. So you can say that mountain is a mile high, right? You're trying to get your point across, but it's, it's not actually a mile high. Um, and so 
but, but I, I don't think Jesus is doing this. I don't think he's saying take this command literally, but I don't think he's exaggerating. I think he's trying to show the value of the kingdom of God here. He's trying to say that the kingdom is worth giving up a hand for. It's worth giving up a foot for, right? As one commentary I read put it, it says, Jesus does not counsel the removal of body parts because they are useless and unprofitable. Rather, he signals the inestimable worth of the kingdom of God, which surpasses things of incalculable value. As important as eyes, hands, and feet are to us, or whatever else claims ultimate allegiance, they are not life. The kingdom of God is life, and nothing in this life should be allowed to prevent one from entering the kingdom. And this is the same point he's been making to the disciples over and over in chapters 8, 9, and 10. At the end of chapter 8, in verses 35 and 36, he says something very similar. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And then later, he's going to speak to the rich young Euler. And it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is using multiple stories to make the same point. It doesn't matter if it's great possessions, if it's hands, feet, or eyes, if it's the whole world, none of those are worth keeping if it means you lose the kingdom of God. It means if you lose life with him. He's just trying to communicate how valuable the kingdom of God is. It's worth all you have. Um, in, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a story about a man who finds a pearl, and it's so valuable that he sells everything he has, gives it a sells it so that he can go buy this kingdom, this pearl. That's what the kingdom is, of God is like. That's what he's saying here. So, th- so where does this leave us? I think it's important to also note that Jesus is teaching his disciples these things on the road, on the way to Jerusalem. Because it's ultimately in Jerusalem where Jesus lives this teaching out to the full for his disciples. He doesn't just say it, He lives it out, right? He doesn't count his wealth. He set all that aside um, to become a man. His body or his life, he gives that up on the cross, more valuable than the kingdom of God. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 puts it this way. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But here's the thing. In a lot of our passage, Jesus, Jesus never sinned. He didn't need to lose his body for his sin. He lost his body for ours, right? He gave up his life because we've sinned. Again, he's He's pointing to the value or how serious we should take his sin. He took it so seriously that he was willing to give up everything, not for his own sin, but for our sin. And so I want to make that same plea to you today. 
Let's take our sins seriously. Let's take big sins seriously. Let's take small sins seriously. So just a few practical encouragements for ways to do this. First, take it to the Lord. I'd encourage you just to confess your sins to him. Ask for Jesus' forgiveness, knowing that through his death and resurrection, he is faithful to forgive. And then, like I said earlier, I'd encourage you to confess your sins to one another. I know it's not easy. It's not comfortable. But as we've seen today, doing hard things to fight sin is worth doing. So find a friend, find a parish member, your cohort leader, me, doesn't matter. Find someone and confess your sin to them and ask for help and accountability to find them. And then lastly, I'd encourage you um, to go to your brothers and sisters if you see them in sin, right? Be proactive. Like, let's be smart about it. Be kind, be gracious, right? You don't have to be a jerk. But if you see someone in sin, it's unloving based on this passage to not confront them, to not say, hey, you need to change. And so let's take both our sin seriously, and as we talked about at the, the beginning of this text, um, take others seriously. Don't, don't be a stumbling block for them. So just to, to wrap up, to summarize, I want to leave you with kind of these three points. Jesus came to inaugurate an unexpected kingdom. It's not going to look like we expect with power, but it's going to look like, like dying. Um, but it's open to everyone. It's available to everyone. And this kingdom is worth everything we have to enter. Um, and so Jesus died so we could enter it. So, right? So he made it open to everyone through his death. Um, but I hope that that causes us to take our sins seriously today, that we, we see that, that it's, it's either going to cost two lives. It's either going to cost Jesus his life um, on the cross, or it's, it's ultimately going to cost yours. So I pray that we, we take our sins seriously today. Um, please, play with, please play with me. Father, God, just thank you for your son, for sending him for our sins. God, may we be a church that takes our sins seriously, that fights sin well. God, we see how serious you take sin by the links you came to save us from it. Open our eyes today to see our sin, big and small, and help us to repent and turn to you in faith. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.